First John chapter 5 is where we're going to be. First John chapter 5. Uh, we're going to be looking at verses 1 through 12 today. First John 5, 1 through 12. We've been in a series called The Gospel is Love. And kind of walk up to speed, hopefully in a very, a very quick way. Uh, basically what, what is happening is, this is the Apostle John, and he is writing a letter. Um, you get a really healthy understanding, particularly in chapter or in Second John, rather, the, the kind of the way it starts and lets you know that he's an elder, he's in and around all of these young churches in the area of Ephesus, and he is speaking to them about who Jesus is, what he's done, and the ramifications, the implications that has for life for these people. He starts out by, by really saying, uh, look, there's a testimony that we have. We have heard of Jesus, the Son of God. We've seen him. We've looked upon him, which means behold, up close, seen Jesus very closely, and then ultimately touched him. So John is saying, look, this is a person I've lived with, I've interacted with, I have these experiences, the, the, the ones that Paul talks about in 1 Corinthians, uh, the idea that, that this gospel is not a story of sorts, but instead it is, it is the testimony of these men who lived and saw and were with Jesus, saw the very Son of God, and now he seeks to proclaim that to the world. And he reminds the church of what they're called to. That's the start. And ultimately, the calling is for these three things. We've been saying this throughout the entire series, that this is the core of what we're called to. And not just the way we flesh out our core values here at Double Oak Community Church in Chelsea, but the reality of this is, this is, a, this is a way, a lens through which we can see what all of life is about. In the beginning of chapter 1, he talks about this Jesus that he's heard. And that he's seen and that he's looked upon and that he's, he's touched. The testimony of these men who have seen Jesus. And they're drawn to belief. And that's for you and I as well. So the calling of all of our life, the, the basic first premise is that we would believe the truth of the gospel of Jesus Christ. And then in chapter 1 we also saw that there is, look down into verse 4 and you can see the fellowship with the Father and the Son. That when we believe in Jesus Christ, when we begin to have this relationship with God the Father through Christ the Son, by the power of the Holy Spirit, it's not just this, this thing where we're now connected to the Father and the Son, but we're also connected to one another. We have fellowship with one another, and we live in, in the present, this gospel reality. That we're connected, that we're in community, that we're the very family of God. And you saw through the rest of chapter 1, and every week, week after week, John's urge, his continual urge to do what? To love one another. That this is what it looks like to have a relationship with Jesus Christ. You, you love one another. You love the brothers and the sisters. And then also, you keep the commandments. This is what it's like to live out the gospel before one another and before the world. You're going to see those three things really, really emerge at the start of this passage today. And we're not only going to see that, but ultimately the result of these things. What happens when we believe in the gospel, we live in the gospel, and we live out the gospel? We'll get to see that result. So let's read this. 1 John chapter 5, verses 1 through 12. It says this, 
Everyone who believes that Jesus is the Christ has been born of God. And everyone who loves the Father loves whoever has been born of him. By this we know that we love the children of God when we love God and obey his commandments. For this is the love of God, that we keep his commandments, and his commandments are not burdensome. For everyone who has been born of God overcomes the world. And this is the victory that has overcome the world, our faith. Who is it that overcomes the world except the one who believes that Jesus is the Son of God? This is he who came by water and blood, Jesus Christ. Not by the water only, but by the water and the blood. And the Spirit is the one who testifies because the Spirit is the truth. For there are three that testify, the Spirit and the water and the blood, and these three agree. If we receive the testimony of men, the testimony of God is greater. For this is the testimony of God that he has borne concerning his Son. Whoever believes in the Son of God has the testimony in himself. Whoever does not believe God has made him a liar. Because he has not believed in the testimony that God has borne concerning his Son. And this is the testimony that God gave us eternal life. And this life is in his son. Whoever has the son has life. Whoever does not have the son of God does not have life. This is the word of the Lord to which we say, thanks be to God. Back into verses 1 and 2, you really see these three things we've been talking about week after week emerge. And that's because these things are not created out of thin air. Instead, these things are emblematic of, they, they reflect truly the scriptures. And what John says here is that everyone who, the, who believes that Jesus is the Christ has been born of God. So the inception of our faith is not, is not our, our, our newfound church attendance. It is not this action or something or this thing that we do, this new spiritual discipline or this practice or this habit. No, those who are born of God are those who have believed in the gospel of Jesus Christ, who believed in Jesus' life and death and resurrection, and who have eternal life through it. This is the beginning of faith and life for the believer. And it says this, and everyone who loves the Father loves whoever has been born of him. So that's where we get this recognition of what it means to live in the gospel. We not only love God when we believe in the gospel, but we also love all those who have been born of him. So this is brothers and sisters in the faith. This is other believers. This is God's family, which we now have an affinity and an affection for and a deep commitment to because of what God has done for us in Jesus. And here's the third. It says, by this, in verse 2, we know that we love the children of God when we love God and obey his commandments. When we love God and we obey his commandments, and, it says, and his commandments are not burdensome. So this is that living out of the gospel reality. That we love God, we love others, but we also obey the commandments that he gives us. And as we do this, our lives look different to the people of the world. Why does that matter? Does it matter what our life looks like in relationship to the world? Well, John describes the world in verses 4 and 5. And there's this deep connection with sin, 
And the things that hold us back and hold us down and cause us struggle, these burdens. And ultimately what we're called to, and even beyond that, the reality that has happened to us in Jesus Christ. So one of the unique things that John says here is he says we're to obey God's commandments and his commandments are not burdensome. They're not burdensome. That doesn't feel right to me. I mean, does anybody else just like, I want to go just be totally obedient, and I just feel this unhinged freedom to just never do what my flesh wants, and I'm only going to do what God wants, and there's no burden here at all. Anybody feel that? Yeah, me neither. The things that God calls us to do, these commandments that we struggle to keep, the reality is they feel burdensome. They feel hard. They feel challenging. And we know this because we fail at keeping these commandments constantly. But look at what John says. He walks out of this statement and his commandments are not burdensome. And at this point... I'm disagreeing with the guy to some degree, okay? Then he says, for everyone who has been born of God overcomes the world. And this is the victory that has overcome the world. It's the only time in, 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 in John's writings where he'll use this word burdensome. But he's doing something that's beautiful here. It's not just clever and it's not just winsome. It's astounding. Because what he's showing us is that honestly and truly, we've been called to and we've been given victory over a world that's truly burdensome. It is the things of the world that are actually burdens to us and God's commandments that are freeing. There's life there. He talks about overcoming the world. So, so what does John mean when he says world? So when I see the word world, I think of a planet, right? I think of this all-encompassing globe. Look, we talk every week about the importance of words and their meaning. When John says world, and particularly in, in his gospel, in John 3.16, which... which most of us would be the, it'd be the passage or the, the scripture that we're most familiar with. For God so loved the world. What does he mean when he says that? It's, it's all this one word that's being used in different places. It's cosmos. It's this word that, that means and can mean a number of things. And that it means really two things. It means one, it does mean this, this group of people that are categorized and characterized by the place in which they inhabit. The place in which they live. This actual world they live in. That's part of it. But the other part of it, when he uses the word world is he's saying all the things that are opposite of the intentions of God. The things that are in direct opposition of the very heart of God. 
Do you remember in chapter 2, there's this, there's this particular phrase, when we, as we've been walking through this series and recognizing that the gospel is love, in 1 John chapter 2, if you have your Bibles, if you look down to verse 15, right before you now, you'll see this phrase, do not love the world or anything in the world. When John writes in 1 John 5, in verses 4 and 5, he's talking about the same world. When you look back into chapter 2 and verse 16, you see the things that really describe the world. It's three very particular things that he describes. That this is what the world looks like. This is what it looks like, ultimately, to be in opposition to God. It's these three things. It's the desires of the flesh, the desires of the eyes, and the pride of life. This is the world. That we would desire things on a carnal level that are not healthy, that are not good for our soul, they're not good for our heart, that, that we would have these desires. That's the desires of the flesh. The second thing being the desires of the eyes, the things that, that, are, that we see, that we want. Like I did this thing growing up where my mom would always just use this phrase. Like I would order too much food and the phrase was my eyes are bigger than my stomach, Right? The desire of the eyes is not just this insatiable, give me more. It goes even beyond that. It goes beyond to things that are, give me more of me. Give me more of the things that I believe give life, not what God says gives life. That's the desire of the eyes. And then finally, the pride of life. The pride of life. The pride of the life that we have built for ourselves. The pride that we've built financially, the equity that we have in our home or our second home, or our car, or our Roth, or 401, or 403B, or our business, or our title, or our looks, or our body. The list goes on and on, the things that we could be prideful about because when you read this phrase and i read this phrase that john writes and says overcome the world it really almost has this like militant tone to it that it's this this battle we're overcoming and the battle when we think of a battle and fighting something and overcoming something we think of that which is outside of us that which has come to attack us and we typically personify it there's something out there that's coming to get me And we know the reality that the enemy is attacking us. He seeks to devour us. But what John is doing in this moment is is connecting this understanding of the world and showing that, hey, you know what? This world that you're, you're, you're overcoming, its evils are inside you, not just outside you. It's the desires of the flesh, the desires of the eyes, the pride of life. You're not called to overcome all of these other outward things. You're called to overcome that sin which so easily entangles you because you know what it does? It burdens you. It drags you down. It causes your mind to be redirected of, away from the things that are above. Of that love that we sang about this morning. 
So John writes to these people in these churches, and he describes overcoming the world. So if we have an understanding of what the world is, it's these, these sinful desires, all of these things, not just something from outside, but the sin that lives within us. What does he mean when he says overcomes? Look down into this passage and look at verses 4 and 5 and look at the way that overcome is used. Because it's really, really unique. He says, for everyone who has been born of God overcomes the world. So look at the tense. It's very present. Look back, look into verse 5 now. Or 4, back into 4. And this is the victory that has overcome the world. Okay, so we shifted from overcomes to has overcome. It's almost as if we've gone from present to past tense. And this is the victory that has overcome the world, our faith. And then verse 5, who is it that overcomes the world except the one who believes that Jesus is the Son of God? So there's this, there's this marked shift between the present moment, seemingly back to the past, and then back to the present again. Why does he write it this way? Why does he say it this way? Well, here's what's happening. Um, when he says, has overcome... Our tendency, our thought, the way that we read the English language, doing the best that we can do is this. We see it as an event in the past. We see it as an event in the past. Has overcome. This is the victory. It's already happened. In a sense, that's very true. But the way that John writes this word is he gives it this extra oomph, this extra emphasis he uses this participle phrase, and I know I'm losing you again because we're just getting weird about words here. But he uses this phrase, and he ultimately draws the reader to see that this isn't just something that has happened in the past. It is fully complete in its happening. That it's not just something that took place, but that something was genuinely accomplished. When John says, has overcome, this is what he's saying. He's not just describing the death of Jesus. He's describing the death of death. Because in his mind, when he writes this, this is the phrase, this is the thing that is resounding in him. When he says, has overcome, it is finished. The very words of Jesus himself. So in a real sense, he writes to these churches and says, look, you, you struggle with, you battle sin. It's hard to walk in righteousness. So much so that it often feels burdensome, even when it's really not, because the sin is the thing that burdens us. But it feels that way. He writes to these people because they're people just like you and I. Paul would describe it in Romans 7 in this way, right? We do what we don't want to do. And then we don't do the things that we do want to do. Martin Luther would use this little phrase, this little Latin phrase, to describe it. Simul usus et peccator. And it's these four words that, that help change the world and the way that people understood the gospel. Because this is what it means. Simultaneously saint and sinner. This is the tension that Paul describes in Romans 7 that we live in. 
So you and I might be struggling with a particular sin, a particular pain, an area where we say, look, I, what do you mean I've overcome the world? And that, I, that's, I can take that. I can receive that. I can't do that. You don't know what my life looks like. You don't know how much I struggled with X this week. Or you don't know that I've been battling this. What do you mean overcome the world, overcome these desires? It's finished in Christ. It happens in the past, but it's also a present reality, not just the promised future. Look into verse 5. Who is it that overcomes the world except the one who believes that Jesus is the Son of God? This is about the present. Who believes in the present? Who overcomes in the present? This present action. This is, I, I truly believe, this is the deepest struggle for all of us. To continually engage and believe the gospel, not just for a moment in the past, but for right now. To believe in the gospel right now. Do we need a cough drop? Look, to believe in the gospel right now. We believe that there was this moment in the past, this thing that happened to us, a, a moment of justification and salvation. But what this reflects, what John writes, is that this is continual action. It's continually believing in the gospel that is happening to us, that is affecting us right now. That we have been saved, that we are being saved, and that we will be saved. And how can we trust in this? How can we know this? Because you know what the victory is? It's our faith. It's our faith. But here's the beautiful thing. It's called ours, but it didn't come from us. That faith is a gift that God has given us. By his spirit, he's illuminated our hearts, convicted by his word. We believe in the gospel. He comes and transforms us. The overcoming of the dark things that we battle, the sin that so easily entangles, the things that cause us pain, that overcoming is not found in us trying harder. It's not found in us trying as hard as we can not to do the thing that we don't want to do or trying as hard as we can to do the thing that we do want to do. Instead, it's found in believing the one who has done it for us. That's the gospel of Jesus Christ. And John is really, really concerned. This is as we kind of move into verses 6 through 12. He's really, really concerned with describing with accuracy the love that has come to us in the gospel of Jesus. So if, if you'll remember, as we walked um, through kind of the early part of, of this letter... This letter that goes out to these churches, there's all this talk of not just not loving the world from a principled standpoint for, for believers, but also recognizing that there are those that are in the world that are coming into the church to, to seek to cause division. 
And one of these groups was called the cessationists. They were a group who ultimately said that they believed that, look, Jesus and with him came this spiritual form of experience that connected you to the Father, but that Jesus, from baptism to death on the cross, there were divine moments, but beyond that, nothing else outside it. There were people that were inside the church that were telling others that this, this Jesus doesn't have a, a deep effect on your life day to day, what you believe in the moment. Instead, he's one of, of many things, of many paths, of other ways, or, or just a way to have a spiritual connection. And you might say, well, that sounds weird and historic and out of place. To which I would say, I think it sounds like now. I think it sounds like the world in which we live. And I think if we, if we don't understand the truth of the gospel, then we can easily fall to that place. Where Jesus is one of a number of things that characterize us. Because in the dark recesses of my heart, and yours, our identity won't be found in him. If the enemy had his way, if we lived in light of our flesh or our eyes or the pride of life, we'd be people who would say, being Republican can change the world. Being a Democrat could change the world. Having money could change the world. Being a part of this organization could change the world. And Jesus is reduced to a thing, among other things. And thank goodness nobody has identity in football this morning. Because <laughs> we're all losers there yesterday. <laughs> um, but John's concerned with describing the truth of this gospel. And he uses these, these really foreign words to us. He says in verse 6, This is he who came by water and by blood, Jesus Christ. Not by the water only, but by the water and the blood. And the Spirit is the one who testifies because the Spirit is the truth. Okay, a couple of things in verse 6. One, first thing, this is he who came by water and blood, Jesus Christ. Two things that are happening in this moment. When, when you look down at that word came, it doesn't mean just one came in an event sort of way. John is writing again with this kind of duality. There's something more here than just the simple word. He's not just stating that, that Jesus came in a historical fashion. He is saying that. But that word is also inclined to show that there's a deep purpose in the way that Jesus comes. There's a deep purpose with which he came. And the whole world has been waiting on it. Everyone is waiting on this Messiah, and this describes how he came. Not by the water only, but by the water and the blood. Why that language? Why does John Labor go to this effort to use this language of water and blood? Well, here's the reality. When you and I read that, we're likely, just on the surface, confused. Anybody read The Water and the Blood and just have it figured out? No, that, that's, that's, this is challenging language. 
what is he doing here? What, is, what does this prove about Jesus being the very Son of God, the water and the blood? Here's the thing. This is, this is what John means. When he describes water here, he's talking about baptism. He's talking about baptism. Look at Matthew chapter 3, and you'll remember this, verses 13 through 17. This is the account of Jesus' baptism. Then Jesus came from Galilee to the Jordan to John. Now, quick update here. John the Baptist, different Baptist than John the Apostle. Okay? So I don't want to get you confused and thinking that this guy wrote this was also beheaded. Then Jesus came from Galilee to the Jordan to John the Baptist to be baptized by him. John would have prevented him saying, I need to be baptized by you and do you come to me? So he asked him this question. But Jesus answered him, let it be so for now, for thus is it fitting for us to fulfill all righteousness. Then he consented. And when Jesus was baptized, immediately he went up from the water, and behold, the heavens were open to him, and he saw the Spirit of God descending like a dove and coming to rest on him. And behold, a voice from heaven said, This is my beloved Son, with whom I am well pleased. So in this moment, at Jesus' baptism, this is his coming by water. Why is that important? If you think about this passage, what was baptism? Baptism is a picture. It is a very human and very real portrayal of repentance. It's an act of confession and repentance. Confessing that one is a sinner that needs to be cleansed in order to have righteousness. But John asked Jesus this, do you come to me? He would be like you or I in this one. He doesn't understand. Why would Jesus come to Jesus doesn't have a need to be baptized. So why does Jesus say, oh, it's appropriate for us to do this now? Because John looks at this situation and he says, you're in my place, and I'm in your place. You're in my place, the place of confession and of repentance, and I'm in your place. Do you see it? Jesus identifies with us in this moment, and he identifies with our sin. It's this deeply spiritual moment, so much so that God descends in the form of a dove in the spirit. And the audible voice of God says, this is my son in whom I'm well pleased. And there were all these people, these cessationists, or secessionists rather, they're, they're, they're clamoring for a moment that's this spiritual. They want this spiritual moment that defines their life. And they're looking for it to be something powerful, something incredible, something like this. And they were, they were continually involved with rituals and all kind of things that would try to get them to this place or get them to have a spiritual moment. Does anybody want a spiritual moment? Am I the only one? They wants to pray and like hear the heavens open. 
and say like, yes, Michael, this is the car you should buy. <laughs> right? We want to hear from the Lord. But here's how the hearing comes. It's not just by the water, but it's by the blood. And this is why John is so specific. Not by the water only, but by the water and the blood. Because in baptism, Jesus identifies with our sin. But by the blood of the cross, which this is referring to, he doesn't simply see our sin, identify our sin, recognize our sin, but he does this. He takes our place. He places us in his place, and he takes ours. So there's water of baptism where he shows us what will be, what he has come to do, why he has come. And there's this blood that testifies to what he has done in destroying sin, in putting death to death. And it's the Spirit is the one who testifies because the Spirit is truth. So Jesus is not just a spiritual, it's not can't be reduced to a spiritual experience or a picture of what will be. He has to be the one that has perfectly lived out, fulfilled the will of God, died for us, and truly taken our place. That's what John is saying. There is no substitute. There's no other. There's no Jesus has some good principles, but there's other stuff too. There is not that. There is either the Son and there's life, or there is not the Son and there's death. And that's huge for us. Not so that we can have a doctrine that we can stick our name next to, or so that we could be right. It's not about being right. It's about being righteous. And understanding what it means to have a relationship with God, that it comes only through his son, Jesus. And that in Jesus, life is found. Uh, look down into verse 7. It says this, For there are three that testify the Spirit and the water and the blood. These three agree. So the Spirit testifies at the baptism of Jesus, along with that water. The blood testifies in this way. This is Romans eight eleven. This is Romans chapter 8 and verse 11. It says this, If the spirit of him who raised Jesus from the dead dwells in you, he who raised Christ Jesus from the dead will also give life to your mortal bodies through his spirit who dwells in you. So this is how the blood testifies. It is shed and it is emptied. The spirit that raises this body It's not a metaphor. It is a body that has shed and spilled and been emptied of blood. So when we see things like my, or we see things like this, his buried body began to breathe. This is not poetic. This is not just a nice line or it sounds re really beautiful with the melody. This is reality. That the Holy Spirit's role and the resurrection is raising Jesus to life. And the blood testifies to that. What 
he has done. So these three testify. Well, why is it important? Why does John say to all these people, why is he saying, look, these things testify, not to just make sure that people that are out there kind of spewing stuff that don't really believe in Jesus, not just to protect you from them, but to give you assurance to help you understand that this gospel is true. Why do we need to know that? Why do I need to believe this gospel is true? Because I'm called not to just embrace the reality that will come, but that that takes place right now. That I'm supposed to live out this faith that overcomes the world, I'm called to believe the gospel and to live in it and live it out right now in this moment. This is a quote from Colin Cruz. He writes uh, in a commentary, ultimately on, on 1 John, 2 John, 3 John, and he describes why John goes to the labor of describing these three things in this way. He says, in judicial cases, it is vital that the testimony of different witnesses should agree. The author builds his case here by showing that his three witnesses, the spirit, the water, and the blood, concur in their testimony. They all say the same thing. The secessionists denied that Jesus came by water and blood, focusing only on his coming by water. This is it. They, it's all about the spiritual moment, not about his death and resurrection, which they probably associated with their experience of the spirit. Now, the author insists that Jesus came by water and blood, and that to this, the spirit also bears witness. It's only in the concurrence of these three witnesses that the truth about Jesus is to be found. So he says this, look, in any case, there has to be evidence that corroborates. People that are saying the same thing. People that understand that all of these things happened. And then John goes on to say in verse 9, you see this. It's not about the testimony of men. But it's the testimony of God. He's saying, don't believe men. Don't just believe someone's word. And he's saying, ultimately, don't just believe my word. Don't just take my word for it. Believe the truth that's found in it. That this Jesus who has been heard, who has been seen, who's been looked upon, and who's been physically touched, interacted with, and lived with, that his testimony is not one of a mere historical person, but it's God in the flesh. Emmanuel. God has come to us. And then he helps us understand that we get it, but we don't get it. Look at verse 10. Whoever believes in the Son of God has the testimony in himself. Whoever does not believe God has made him a liar because he does not believe in the testimony that God, has not, that God has born concerning his son. So you either believe or you don't believe, but there's this deep effect that takes place in it. Whoever believes in the Son of God has the testimony in himself. There's a real reason that John uses this language. He doesn't say has the testimony. Whoever believes has the testimony. He goes to the point to say in himself. Why does he do that? Why does he say it that way? Here's why. Because this life, this eternal life that comes in Jesus Christ is not to be held as if it's like a possession. Like all the things that we have. Right? It's much more than that. He says that those who believe in Jesus have this testimony in themselves. He's describing the Holy Spirit. 
He goes to these deep pains to show and retell and continue to tell what it means to believe in Jesus. What has truly happened to us? Do we know that the Holy Spirit lives inside of us? Well, no, I mean, I get that, Michael. I, we, we talk about this a lot. The Spirit indwells us. Well, let's look at Ephesians 1, 13 so we can understand what God has done in bringing us life and then placing life inside us. In him, you also, when you heard the word of truth, that hearing of the word, the gospel of your salvation, and believed in him, were sealed with the promised Holy Spirit. So Paul's writing to the Ephesian church and he's telling them about ultimately who Jesus is and what he's done, how they've been chosen, all of these things. And he says, when you heard the word of truth, it's the spirit that comes, gives power to the word of truth, the gospel of your salvation. It's the spirit that empowers you to understand the gospel and believe in him. It's the spirit that empowers you to believe that very spirit now lives in you. God has drawn you to the place where you have not only believed in him, but that he has come to live in you. This is hard to grasp. It's hard to grasp. And it's why we were called into worship today by these final two verses. Verse 11. And this is the testimony that God gave us eternal life, and this life is in his Son. Whoever has the Son has life. Whoever does not have the Son of God does not have life. There is no life apart from Jesus Christ. None. No real eternal resurrection life. And you might have the pride of life. You could have that. And you could glory in and, and take take deep pride in all the things that you have and what you've done and what you've accomplished and how you've lived and all the nice things that people said about you and who you were. And maybe they'll build a statue about you or write about you in a book, but largely you will be forgotten as will I. So that's not the life that we want, and it's not the life that God designed. This is the life that he designed. But you don't just exist as one of 8 billion, were we 8, 9 billion people on this planet, in this world. The thing that describes you and makes you you more than anything that Dr. Seuss would tell you is this. You are in Christ. You are bound up in him. You cannot be divorced from Jesus. And Jesus is the realist of the real of who you are. He has taken your place. He's taken your place and he's taken mine. This is not like a thing that we think 
and it's a good and it's a happy thought and it's going to help us live better tomorrow, please know that that is not the purpose of what John is saying. That is not why he's writing. He's writing to tell believers the reality of who God is and what his design, his plan is for us. And it's to experience life and that life is found in him. Specifically in the Son. And so it's why we sang earlier about setting our minds on things above. Because when we do that, we experience this reality. This is how Paul describes what it means to be one who has life. Who has the Son. This is Colossians chapter 3, verses 1 through 4. We sang it earlier and this is what it says. If then you have been raised with Christ... So this is the reality for the believer. You have been raised with Christ. You have been raised to newness of life. You have new resurrection life in Jesus. So this is what you're called to do. Seek the things that are above where Christ is seated at the right hand of God. Set your minds on things that are above, not on things that are on the earth. So I, I think on, on, the, on the surface level, on a cursory level, that sounds like I need to think about spiritual stuff. Pretty vague. What, what is this spiritual stuff I'm supposed to think about? What are these, these things that are above? Paul expounds and he says this. This is the thing that we think of. For you have died and your life is hidden with Christ in God. When Christ, who is your life, appears, then you also will appear with him in glory. Do you see this? For you have died, and your life is hidden with Christ in God. This is not about, God says, I'm going to be new, and I will be new, and that's that anyone who's in Christ is a new creation, and I guess that new creation moment will come at some point. No, your life right now is hidden with Christ in God. I mean, if I were you, I would also think, like, because you guys see it. You're like, why is he hollering at me about this? I struggle to believe this, and so do you. When Christ, who is your life, this is our life. He is everything. He is not a part of the, a part of us. Not of our morality, not of our religion, not of our rituals. Everything that we are is bound up in him. Jesus Christ is our life. And if that's true, we'll do radical things this week if we believe that. We'll love our neighbor. I mean, the person who comes into our place of business will love them because we've been loved and we've been given life. The person who comes into our school, the student that's struggling, we'll, we'll love them, we'll speak to them. The person that, that comes to our office, for me, the person that I go and sit down and have lunch with. Who's going to tell me the truth about what their life was like this week. And they'll feel good about it because they're like, I know you too, dude, so you're not that great either. <laughs> There's 
deep implications for our real life. We'll actually love others when we recognize that it doesn't matter what I have or the things that I have, have or I have not accomplished, the things that are yet to be, how beautiful people think I am, None of those things matter when you realize that your life is tied up with life in God and His Son, Jesus. Um, I didn't bring this in this morning. I found this on my chair this morning. Um, Me and I have two daughters. Our oldest, Millie, is in first grade. uh, And her teacher, Ms. Laura Harris, is in this room. And so, uh, I'm sorry. Uh, in some ways, I'm kidding. Um, but Laura knows this about Millie. Uh, Millie loves to write right now. She loves to doodle and draw and take notes, and she's always got a pencil or a pen or a notepad with her, and she's always writing something. You know, remember that phase you went through where you're learning these words and you're learning to write them, and you're legitimately learning to communicate in a brand new way with people. I found, I found this note from Millie on my chair. It says, to dad, from Millie. Um, and then it's got some lettering on the inside. And then a picture of us on the, on the right side. I see I just turned and just showed you that I'm more bald than I thought I was when I woke up today. <laughs> and that actually is a good segue for the picture here because I've kind of got like these four like Homer Simpson kind of hairs. Um, and that's I, honestly, that's becoming more accurate. So points for that, Mill. Um, but these are, these are the words that she wrote in it. It says, you are my one dad. And you are me. And I am you. And it's true. Because there are so many things that I see in Millie, and I look at it, and it's me. And there are so many things that are in me that looks just like Millie. You are my one dad, and you are me, and I am you. DNA is a crazy thing. It's nuts that you you see yourself, you're connected to yourself in these little people or big people. But you see them. Do you know That your God looks at you in Jesus Christ and says, you are me and I am you. Do you understand that? That this baptism, which prefigures and initiates the path toward Jesus' death, his burial, and his resurrection in this moment when he takes John and he puts him in his place and he takes John's place 
do you realize that's, that's what God has done for you and me? In Jesus. He's put us in his place. We're him and he's us. And it's benevolent and it's beautiful and it's hopeful and it's joyful. But here's the other thing. It is powerful. Because it is the way that we overcome the world. Not by our own strength, not by anything in us, but Christ in us. Christ in us. Our faith is not this faith that we've mustered up. It's this faith where God's by his spirit, by his graciousness, has caused us to see that he is life and he's given us that life. Do you know every week the hardest thing about just coming to this moment where you know you have to stop? Every week, I just, I want to have this, like, revolutionary thing that I'm able to tell you to do. I, I mean it in a, in a healthy way, not in a, not in a selfish way, but, but th- there would be something, this one thing that all of us could do this week, and it would go and change the world. This is it. Believe. That you're in Christ. And that he's in you. Would you pray with me? Father, it is so challenging to believe. This deep reality that you are in us and we are in you. So, Father, would you help us in our unbelief? Would you cause us to trust you? Would you cause us to believe in this gospel? That you have come not by water only, but by blood. That you have given your whole self so that we might live in you. Father, it is not through us that we overcome the world, but through you through your son Jesus, in his spirit. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. We're going to take a moment to respond. Um, look, this is an incredibly powerful song. I, I would urge you, if you, if you need prayer, uh, if you want to know more about who Jesus is, I want to talk to you. I want to spend time with you. A number of people here in this room do. respond in song, um, I want you to read and seek out the depth of these words and see what God says about who you are. That this boundless grace has bound you up with him. So sing, pray, don't sing. Some of you smile occasionally so we know we're all hanging in there. Now let's take some time to respond.
boundless peace. Not because we deserve it, not because we've done anything quite the opposite, but Christ has taken our place. Life is found in Jesus. Uh, I would encourage you this morning to, to open your hands in this posture. If you're new here, this is not magic and we are not weird. I promise. Uh, well, maybe in some ways, but just not this one. Um, look, this is just a posture. This is a picture of, of receiving blessings. that Christ has is yours. All of life, you have it if you have the Son, if you believe in Jesus. We leave this place knowing that we are blessed because He has given us peace and poured the love of God into us by His Spirit. May we all go in peace.